We'll begin our study tonight in 2 Samuel chapter 5, where we left off the last time. We were pretty close to, uh, well, we got about halfway through chapter 5. We ended at verse 9. So just as a quick recap, just remember that David is now reigning over all of Israel. All of the other northern tribes have joined with David, and they've pronounced him to be their king. So Saul's dynasty has officially ended, and David is also no longer in Hebron, where he started out in the, as the king of Judah uh, in the city of Hebron. He's now moved to Jerusalem after having conquering the uh, Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem, and he's made Jerusalem his capital. It's a much better location to rule from Jerusalem than it was from Hebron, and uh, primarily the reason is multiple uh, it is more uh, closer to the rest of the tribes and, and more defendable. And so it's, it's definitely a much better place for David as he begins reigning now over the entire kingdom of the nation of Israel. One nation under God. And that's, I know, a phrase from our own Pledge of Allegiance, but it really does make sense to apply it to the nation of Israel. And it has been a nation that was divided, and now they are united as one, and Jerusalem is the capital, and David is the king. So these are good things that are beginning to develop in the nation of Israel. They're reaching a place now where they are going to really take off as a nation, and both politically and economically. And under David's leadership, there will be many, many good things that will take place. But not only is it necessary in David's mind to be using Jerusalem as a political or military uh, capital, but he also wants Jerusalem to become their capital that has to do with their worship of God. And I'm convinced that David has already been told by the Lord that it is God's intent for Jerusalem to be that place where God would settle and Remember in the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers, God had mentioned to Moses way back some 450 years before this that God was going to choose a place where he would be worshipped. And I'm convinced that David already knows, at least suspects, that it is Jerusalem that that place would be established. And it would be done by David or at least David thought that it would be done by David. As it turned out, it would be done by David's descendant, his son Solomon, officially. But David begins the groundwork to make this all happen. And so here in chapter 5, we find some of the blessings that come David's way. We also find some of the tragedies that are resulting from mistakes that David makes. And we also find a little bit about some of the things that David does that aren't really spoken of yet as being very negative, but they will result in becoming a very major problem. But in all of this, we are always mindful of this one thing. God's hand is on him. And whether he does things well or not, overall, David is a man after God's own heart. And we'll see that as we continue to develop uh, the, in the story of David, uh, the uh, understanding of how God allows certain things in our lives, in spite of the fact that they're not necessarily God's will, he allows those things to happen for purposes, his goals, and his plans to become a reality. So we're going to start off again today in chapter 5, beginning with verse 10. And it tells us, so David won and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's important. The Lord God of hosts was with him. Even though there were times when David didn't rely on God's presence, even though David didn't know God's perfect will in certain areas of his life, it says that God was with him. And we need to understand that God never left David. And as it turns out, in the end, David doesn't leave his God either. But the Lord did not forsake David. David did make mistakes, and David ended up failing on more than one occasion. But here in the beginning of chapter 5's 
account of David's reign, beginning with verse 10, it tells us very specifically that the Lord is with David, blessing David in all that he does. And it says in verse 11, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David in cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built a David a house. Now Hiram is apparently a little younger than David, perhaps maybe by 10 years or more. David is now 35 or 36, maybe 37 years old. David began to reign when he was 30, and he's now in Jerusalem at the age of, I guess, 37. So Hiram is a younger man. We know that because Hiram also is mentioned during Solomon's reign as well. And so he's, in that day, going to be a rather elderly statesman. But here, he's a young king of Tyre, north of Israel, and he offers to build David a house with the wonderful materials that come from what is now known as Lebanon. Tyre was known for its cedar trees and its cypress trees. And the cypress was a very hardwood. Cedar was a very, very tall tree and very prominent in the land of Lebanon, then known as Tyre and Sidon. And he brings a bunch of the cedar down to Jerusalem and builds David a house with his own carpenters, with his own masons. He has done David a great favor, a great honor. And he does this to pay tribute to David because he recognizes David as the new king of Israel and he wants to be on David's best side. And I think that perhaps the, my, the, the, the major reason for that might be that Tyre was a seagoing community, but so were the Philistines. And the Philistines were doing all kinds of raids in that Mediterranean region, which would include Israel and Tyre. And I believe that Hiram initially wanted to be joint with David against the Philistines, and hopefully with that uh, blessing of being part of a friendship with David, that his forces and David's forces could subdue the Philistines, and that ultimately did happen. But Hiram is also a man who respects David. He's seen David's ability to reign over the people of Israel. He's recognized David as a very wise man and respects him and actually has expressed a great deal of confidence in David. And David has also now joined in that same relationship with Hiram, become a good friend with him. And so it says in verse 11 again, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Now verse 12 is also a very important verse, and I want to make sure that we understand the import of what is said here. As important as it was in verse 10, where it says that the Lord God of hosts was with David, in verse 12 it says, So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of all his people Israel. God had exalted David and his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. That's an important statement. God did it not for David's sake, but for the nation's sake. And God still loves that nation today. It is still his people. They are still the people that God has chosen, and they will not ever be forgotten, forsaken, or left by God. He has declared it, and that is what we need to continue to remember. There's a lot of things that are happening in the world today, and much of it is happening centrally around the nation of Israel. You may be aware of the fact that this is the month of Ramadan, and already there have been several attacks against the people of Israel. Just last in, in Israel time, Thursday night, early morning, our, our, our day today, we found that Another attack had been taking place in Tel Aviv. Many people had been injured. Terrorist attacks are very, very common during this month of Ramadan. And it's interesting to note, obviously, it's the Palestinians who are propagating these attacks. And in Palestine, they are sending off 
all kinds of fireworks celebrating in the streets over the death of Israeli citizens. How terrible is this situation? But God is in control. And God, although it is going to happen that several men, many people perhaps may lose their lives between now and the time that God finally sits his son, Jesus Christ, on a throne of David, there is still this wonderful statement that is being made in this verse 12. God has exalted David's kingdom, his dynasty, for the sake of the people of Israel. Still today, true. Now, there are many places in subsequent verses of the Old Testament, in Second Kings, in First and Second Chronicles, and in other places where it is said that God is going to do something on behalf of the people of Israel for David's sake. And so David is held in great esteem by the Lord as well as the nation of Israel. Some 12 times you'll find a reference to, for the sake of David, I will do this, with regard to the things that he is speaking of in those days that are yet to come, uh, and days that will follow David's reign as his dynasty continues, and it will continue until the Babylonian captivity, and then there's a time of silence. And then again, they're back in the land, and they stay in the land until the Roman Empire, and then they are taken out of the land once again. And for this time, almost 2,000 years would have passed before they're back in the land again. But all of these various troubles that they have had to face as a nation are not any indication that God is through with his people. He is not through with them. And they are his people, and David is his king. Now, it tells us next, although it's only a brief statement, we've seen already that David had taken upon himself the privilege of a king. In those days, the kings of those surrounding countries had harems, and David is building his harem as well. Doesn't make it right. It's not because God approves, but David does it. It's part of the things that God does allow, and it's here that we find that David has many more wives and concubines that are added to his already fairly large list of women in his entourage of wives and concubines. And it's also given here the birth of many of his other sons, some of whom are very, very unfamiliar to us, but two of them are very, very significant. So we're going to read in verse 13 that David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron or Hebron, also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, and these are just sons. There were daughters as well, as was mentioned, but they're not mentioned. But the sons' names of those who were born in Jerusalem are as follows. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Eliada, and Elephilet. Now, the two that I mentioned that are significant are Nathan and Solomon. Now, obviously, Solomon especially was born much later than this present time that we're looking at in the story tonight. But the author has chosen to include the list of the names of these sons of David who were born to David in Jerusalem. And again, Nathan and Solomon are the two that I would zero in on as being significant names because, of course, you know Solomon was the one who would take the throne of David after David dies. And everyone knows that Solomon also had many, many wives and many, many concubines. He surpassed David in the size of his harem such that he perhaps was greater in number of all of the kings in the entire region of the Middle East. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I don't understand. I can only report that this is what was the case. God had said, through Moses, they are not to multiply to themselves wives or horses, or gold and silver. Well, David began that process and saw actually improved upon it. 
and he did all of which God had said no to Moses that king of Israel should not allow such things to happen. He allowed it anyway. And of course, it wasn't without some degree of punishment for those wrongdoings. In the case of David, we will find some degree of punishment for the things that he did wrong. But Nathan was an individual son that only is mentioned in the New Testament because he is actually the ancestor of Mary. Solomon, on the other hand, is the ancestor of Joseph. And they are both mentioned, Nathan and Solomon, in the genealogies of the New Testament scriptures of Matthew and Luke. So that's the, the importance of Nathan in particular, that he was an ancestor of Jesus Christ, as was Solomon. The rest of these names are insignificant names to us, uh, but I'm sure that they are very important to David. They were his children. And as the other children who were born in Hebron, they play a part in the situations that develop in David's life later on. Well, enough said about that, but what we want to know, go to is the portion of Scripture that talks about, again, the Philistines. Now remember, the Philistines had beaten, very badly beaten, the nation of Israel under Saul's reign. Saul had lost his life in that final battle, along with Jonathan and his other sons, and it was a terrible tragedy. Many of the towns and, and villages and the cities of Israel were now occupied by the Philistines. Now David has taken control of all of the Israelite territory, and he wants those territories that the Philistines have taken to be put back into the hands of Israel. But he's not going to attack the Philistines. He knows the Philistines are going to attack him. And so as that part of the history unfolds, David is seen here as a man of integrity. Because it tells us in verse 17, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So a war is going to take place. David is preparing his army. The Philistines are preparing theirs. But before David enters into the battle, we see that David is doing something that Saul apparently never, ever did, at least not successfully. It says in verse 19, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David has inquired of the Lord, and he asks two questions. Should I go up, and will you be with me? And the answer to both is yes, very certainly. And so David goes then with the confidence that God is indeed with him. And in verse 20, it tells us, So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perizim, which means the Lord of the breach or the break, breaking through. And it says in verse 21, And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. So all of the idols of the Philistines that they took with them into the battle were left behind when the Philistines ran. And of course, many of those were... Uh, idols that were made with gold and silver or precious jewels or perhaps other uh, various uh, very, very costly things were left behind. And as they flew from that battle scene, David took the spoils and brought them back to Jerusalem. Victory has been won because God said, I will do that. And David trusted God and God came through on behalf of his servant David. And in verse 22, it tells us again, Therefore David inquired, or rather the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves again in the valley of Rephaim. You would think that by now they would understand that David has God on his side. But they are not really ready to give up that territory that they have taken from Israel. 
So they've gathered another group of men to join their forces, and they've come to the same place because it's a good place for them, being a valley area where they can use their chariots and their horsemen and have an advantage over, at least they thought, David and his men, who were primarily and defend with uh, equipment that was really equal to the equipment that the Philistines had. However, David again inquires of the Lord. Verse 23 says, David inquired of the Lord and he said, shall not go up. What? Wait a minute. You told us to go up against the Philistines and you would go before us. Now God is telling David something different. It's a good thing David inquired. Because there's a different plan in place. Now, if David had just assumed that since God was with me the first time against the Philistines, surely he will be with me in the next time with this, against the Philistines, it's very likely that David would have lost the battle. Remember, when Joshua went into the land, they won a great battle in Jericho because God told Jer Joshua what to do. But they also immediately followed that great victory with a terrible loss against Ai. Why? Because somebody had sinned. And because there was a disagreement with that one individual and God, God punished the entire nation. Now, God does move in ways that we don't understand. But it's always, always, always good to inquire of the Lord before you do something that you're not sure what the outcome might be. It's a good lesson for all of us. It's a good lesson for David and anybody else who would follow after David in the days of the nation of Israel. And when they did inquire of the Lord, the Lord was willing to help them, always. And especially with David, because David and the Lord were together in this one thing, trusting God was of utmost importance to David. So he goes to the Lord, and again, he asked the Lord, should I go up against the Philistines? And the answer of the Lord said, no, you shall not go up. But instead, circle, and I'm reading the remainder of verse 23, circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees or the balsam trees in some of your translations. In other words, he tells David, I want you to circle around and surprise him from their rear. Instead of attacking them head on like you did the last time, you're still going to go into the battle, but you're going to use a different method to obtain the victory. God's methods, God's ways are not always our ways. And his ways are beyond our finding out. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's always good to inquire of the Lord. But what he tells David is, not only are you going to attack from the rear, but David, I'm going to go before you. And this is how you'll know that I am indeed moving on your behalf. Verse 24, it says, And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Take note of the fact that God says he will strike the Philistine army. Going before David, and the way that David will know that he's on the move is that the mulberry trees or the balsam trees will start to be rustled, and there will be an obvious sound coming from the trees that will indicate that God's army is on the move. They couldn't see God's army, but they knew that God's army was there. I'm reminded in the story of, in I believe, Second Kings, when Elijah is in the city of Dotham, and he's surrounded by the armies of the Assyrians. They've come to take him. They're going to capture him, and they want to kill him. But Gehazi comes to Ezekiel, and he says, Lord, they're surrounding us. We're doomed. And Ezekiel, I'm sorry, I keep on saying Ezekiel, and I mean Elijah. So, Scratch the Ezekiel and insert Elijah in the story. Elijah answers Gehazi and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord answered Elijah's request. And Gehazi saw the armies of the Lord surrounding the city. There were more of them than there were of the Assyrian army. They couldn't be seen, 
with a natural eye. But Gehazi was given this wonderful privilege of seeing in the spiritual realm. Now in David's case, the same sort of thing is happening here. They see, not with their physical eyes, but they know that the army of the Lord is present. And the army of the Lord goes before David's army and defeats the Philistines. And it says in verse 15, And David gathered, uh, did so. He did exactly as the Lord had said. And the Lord drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So David and his armies were able to follow the armies of the Philistines all the way back to Philistine territory. And it's a great, great victory on behalf of David's men. Verse 2 says, or verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Again David gave all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went all the people who were with him, Baal, Judah, which is the same as Kijath, Jerem, they went from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now this part of the story is a very, very interesting portion of God's word with regard to the life of David. Now, David isn't really following God's perfect will here. It's God's will that the Ark of the Covenant be moved to Jerusalem. But it's not God's will that the method David uses, that's going to cause some problems. The method that David uses is similar to what the Philistines had done many years before. Remember the story, the Philistines had beaten the armies of Israel when Eli was judge. And they had the Ark of the Covenant with them in that battle. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant back with them to Philistine territory. And they set it up in the temple of Dagon, their god. And when they did that, through a certain several days, many, many difficult troubles had come against the Philistines as a result of the ark being in the temple of Dagon. In fact, their god Dagon, the statue that they made of him, fell two times and finally was broken on the second time into pieces. And they also suffered greatly from the fact that they were given a plague that caused boils on their bodies. And so they decided, we've got to send this Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. So they did. But they put it on a cart and was taken by that cart, being drawn by two cows, female cows that had just given birth. And they determined that if the cows go immediately back to Israel, they'll know that the cause of their problems was indeed the Ark of the Covenant. And it was exactly as they had thought. The ark was brought back to the Israeli territory by those cows and those are a great and wonderful thing on behalf of the people of Israel that the ark was returned by the hand of God to the nation of Israel. It was there eventually placed at Kiriath-Jerim and for about 70 years that's where the ark of the covenant remained. Now the altar was still in Shiloh, just north of Jerusalem. And so they had the altar in one place, the Ark of the Covenant in another. The tabernacle of Moses was also in Shiloh, but it was getting pretty, pretty, pretty old and dilapidated by this time. And so it's David's intent to bring the Ark of the Covenant and the altar, ultimately, of sacrifice back to Jerusalem, where he is now reigning. The political kingdom will become also the religious center. That was his intent. But he's using the wrong method to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Again, referring to the book of Deuteronomy, 
we find that there was a very specific means by which the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved about from place to place. The Ark of the Covenant, you may remember, was built out of acacia wood. It was a rectangular box, only about two feet by three feet in diameter and height and width, and it was covered by gold. And then it had a mercy seat on its top, and that mercy seat was pure gold. And then on top of the mercy seat, two images made of pure gold of cherubim, whose wings were touching each other and they were facing each other, and that Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and always concealed from the view of all the people. The only time it was ever seen was by the high priest once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. And when they decided, when God decided, I should say, to move during the wilderness, those 40 years, the very first thing that was done was the high priest would cover the Ark of the Covenant Pins of animals so they could not seen. Poles were in that Ark of the Covenant through the rings on all four corners. Those poles were used passing through the rings on all four corners so that the two poles would be used to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant by a specific tribe of people. Not only a specific tribe, but certain descendants of that specific tribe. The Kohathites by name, descendants of Levi, their family, their individual family, no other Levites but them, were allowed to carry the ark. And so they would shoulder the ark underneath those poles, four men on each corner, and they would carry the ark out of the Holy of Holies after it has been covered by the high priest, and nobody is able to see the ark but they carry it until they come to a place where God says, this is where we are to reset up everything. The tabernacle would be reconstructed and the Ark of the Covenant would be placed back into the Holy of Holies and the high priest would then go in and uncover the Ark of the Covenant and then they would be there until the next time God says we were to move. So it was always to be moved by the Kohathites and only by them carrying the ark on their shoulders with those poles extending out through the rings on each of the corners of the Ark of the Covenant. That was not done by David's method here. And I'm not really sure why it was done the way it was, except for the fact that, well, the Philistines did it that way, and it seemed to be an effective way to bring the ark from one place to the other. They didn't look into the Word of God and that wasn't necessarily David's fault. It was just as much the fault of Abinadab, who was a Levite, and his sons, who knew that they should have gone to the Word of God to find out how it is that the Ark of the Covenant was moved in the past. They would have avoided a great deal of trouble if they had done so. But it tells us that the Ark was placed on a new cart, and they've got oxen hauling the cart, and everybody is excited. 30,000 men have been put to this task of bringing this Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim for about 15-mile journey from there to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, on cymbals, castanets, if you will. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, it tells us Uzziah, or Uzzah rather, one of Abinadab's sons, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So they ran over some rough terrain, and the ark seemed to be moving too much back and forth, and Uzzah's thought was, I've got to keep the ark from falling off this cart. So he reached out and he touched the ark, and tried to keep it from falling. That seems like a very noble thing. And it kind of was, except for the fact that he should have known that no one was to touch the ark. He, being a Levite, would have understood that. But he did that, and it was like an impulsive thing. I've got to stop it from falling. It seems like that would be the right thing for him to do. And 
I suppose you could agree that it was the right thing, but it cost him dearly. The auction had stumbled, and he touched the ark, and it tells us the anger, in verse 7, of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. It wasn't that he was just irresponsible. The original Hebrew specifies very, very clearly that this was a terrible error, a mistake on his part for having done what he should have known should not have been done. It was an error, and he died there by the ark of God. And then in verse 8, it tells us David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And remember the Philistines' battle a couple of chap- uh, verses ago, he called the place of that battle Perez or Baal Perez, which meant the Lord of the Breach or the Lord of the Breakthrough. Well, here, the Breach of Uzzah, David calls this place. And that's what it's known as that name, even to the day of the writing of this book of Second Samuel. Verse 9 says also, not only was David angry because of what the Lord had done, but he was afraid of the Lord that day, it tells us in verse 9. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, he really, really wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And now he finds this embarrassment before all of the people. Uzzah is because he touched the ark. The ark cannot proceed until a resolution to this problem is found. And it says in verse 10, So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittim. Now, Obed-Edom is all a Levitical priest. And he's a man who is very nearby, and he's bringing this ark of the covenant to Obed-Edom's home. Verse 11 says, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, that appears to have told David something about the ark of the covenant and something about God. It was a blessing for Obed-Edom for the ark to be in his house. So David isn't going to be able to say, well, the ark of the covenant is at fault for Uzzah's death. Nor is it likely that David could ever blame God for something that Uzzah had done because Uzzah had made the mistake of not following the commands of God. But it's during this time that we find David beginning to seek the Lord's word with regard to what should actually be done with regard to this Ark of the Covenant. And he's inspired to do that because while it's been in Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom has been blessed by the Lord. And so David now is going to act on that truth. And before he goes any further, he digs into the word of God. Now, we're not told that here so I'd like to take you to Second Chronicles, uh, where that information is indeed given to us with regard to, or rather First Chronicles, the fact that David did look into the Word of God to determine what actually should have been done and what could they do now. So in verse 1 of chapter 15 of First Chronicles, we find this recorded. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God to minister before him forever. He could only know that if he had gone to the word of God to determine that was what was missing. They shouldn't have taken the ark of the covenant on a cart. They should have had the Levites involved. It goes on to talk about that, and he says in verse 3, And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. And he starts to talk about the various sons of Kohath and the sons of Merari, the sons of Gershom, and all the other sons of the Levites who would be involved in this project. And he goes on to talk about, in verse 11, two individuals David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Esaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. 
Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So there David is confessing in First Chronicles chapter 15 the mistake that he had made that was made by the Levites in not pursuing an understanding of how it was that the Ark of the Covenant should be moved. So now we find in verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Edom, uh, Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Not only are they doing it correctly this time by having the Kohathites shoulder the ark on the poles that are extending from those four rings on each of the four corners of the ark, but David is offering a sacrifice every six paces. That's a lot of animals being sacrificed between the distance, however long it might have been, from Obed-Edom's home to the place where the, t the tent that was made for the storing of the ark in Jerusalem. But it was a matter of very great importance to David that they do these things very, very carefully. So the ark is being taken finally from Kiriath-Jared all the way to Jerusalem, and it's been successfully brought to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Instead of his kingly garments, he was just wearing the inner garment of the priest. The linen ephod would be what priests would first put on before they put on the outer garments. And he's dancing before the Lord in this linen garment, and he's just experiencing such joy, such wonderful blessings, such beautiful praise being poured out on his lips for the wonderful things that God is allowing him now to do. Take note of the fact that the Ark of the Covenant has always been and will always be a symbol of the presence of God. And that's important for us to remember. Although we don't need the Ark of the Covenant in our worship of God, it is still a very, very important symbol of worship for the nation of Israel. Now, nobody knows presently where the Ark of the Testimony is. It's been lost. It's been hidden. Many believe by Jeremiah, or it could have been by Josiah. The last time it was mentioned is during Josiah's reign. But it would be definitely have, it would have been taken out of the Holy of Holies before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. We're confident with that because there are many, many stories about different stories, granted, but stories that relate to the moving of the ark and the hiding of the ark, and its present location is still unknown. But it's still a very important piece of what needs to be done in order to make the New Testament fulfilled with regard to the building of the next temple in Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant, I believe, will be found for that to happen. When the Ark of the Covenant is found, it will give Israel a very certain, strong reason for building their temple in Jerusalem once again. That will have to happen, because the book of Revelation cannot be fulfilled unless it does happen. But it is God's presence that is referred to whenever you think of the Ark of the Covenant. And frankly, we as individuals, again, don't need the Ark of the Covenant. And why is that? Because we are now the temple of God. And the Holy of Holies is where the Holy Spirit is dwelling, inside each of us as his temple. And we being his Holy of Holies, we are then the place where God Almighty resides, and his presence is in us. That's why we don't need the Ark of the Covenant. It's just a symbol to us. 
but it's very, very important to the nation of Israel. And so it is with David, and it will also be in the last days. Verse 15 continues to say, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and this is a sad portion of this story, Michal, remember her? David's first wife, he took her back after he had become king in Hebron. Now she's in Jerusalem. And Michal, Saul's daughter, tells us in verse 16, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Why would she despise David for this? Because he was the king, and kings don't act this way. That was her opinion. And she despised him as a result of seeing him dancing before the Lord in the face of all of those people wearing just a linen garment instead of his kingly robes, instead of having his crown on his head to demonstrate his kingship. He was just like one of the common men. And we'll see that that really, really is a very, very terrible thing from her eyes, but not so from David's perspective. Verse 17 continues the story. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Now in place of a piece of meat, um, it really in the original language is just one piece. It's the actual translation. It doesn't say a piece of what. It could have been a piece of meat. Uh, in some translations it's dates. But it's just one piece or one portion of something was given to each one along with the bread and the cake of raisins. So all the people were very, very satisfied with the day that they had just celebrated. The Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. It's now being put to the tabernacle where David has erected a temporary place for the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to do more. This is just the beginning. But after finish that, now it tells us in verse 20, he's going back to finally his own house, the house that Hiram had built for him, his palace. And it tells us in verse 20, then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She wasn't very pleased with David, and she let him have it. How dare you do such a thing? Don't you realize that you're the king? Well, David, knowing that he was doing everything that he wanted to do because he loved his Lord, answers Michal. And though Michal was very, very rude and very, very, uh, well, unwifely. I don't know if that's a word, but it shouldn't have been said. She shouldn't have ever accused him, and perhaps there were others, and perhaps there were servants around as well. I don't think she was doing this privately. So others probably did hear this accusation, this railing of his wife against him. She shouldn't have done that. No wife should speak so harshly against her husband, ever. It happens. But it shouldn't ever happen. And then, if it does happen, the husband should never retaliate with words equal to the task. But that's what David now does. Verse 21 says, So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to anoint me ruler over the people of Israel. Wow. You slam me, I'll slam you back. You hit me, I'll hit you twice as hard. Well, that's what he's doing. He's just retaliating. 
he really said some very damaging things, insulting her father. It's truthful, but he shouldn't have done it. It shouldn't have been a rebuke for a rebuke. It should have been words of kindness, gentleness, love. That didn't happen. He goes on to talk more about this situation in the last verses. It says in the end of verse 21, Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, or I will celebrate before the Lord, David says, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humbled in my own sight. I don't care what I look like. I'm doing it before the Lord. I don't care what you think. It's for the Lord that I am doing this thing. And he says, furthermore, as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Punishment that David meets out against his wife is a very, very severe punishment indeed. Any Hebrew woman would never want to be barren. And now she was facing that as her destiny for the things that she said before David the king. Well, good things and bad things happen during David's reign. We'll continue to see David sometimes shine and sometimes not. But one of the things that we always need to remember is in spite of all of the things that David does wrong, he still is a man after God's own heart. And God still has chosen him. And in chapter 7, we'll especially see the wonderful blessing that God has chosen to bestow upon this king that he asked Samuel to anoint so many years before. David in chapter 7 is going to be blessed above the blessings of all men who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And that blessing that he receives will impact each and every one of us. We'll see that the next time we get together in the study of Second Samuel. However, next, Saturday, next Thursday, we are not going to be on Zoom. Keep that in mind. Next Thursday, we'll be at the church at our Thursday evening meeting, Monday Thursday service, 7 o'clock. Please be there as well. I invite you to come and bring others with you. It's a time to remember the passion of our Lord together on that special day. Hope you can come. God bless till then.